This is Crossroads, a Get Religion podcast. Here are some headlines on a hotly debated vaccine mandate topic. From the New York Times, vaccine resistors seek religious exemptions, but what counts as religious? From the Boston Globe, a murky battle over religious beliefs and COVID-19 vaccination continues. And the Associated Press, many faith leaders say no to endorsing vaccine exemptions. The debate and the coverage is likely to come down to the meaning of a simple three-word phrase, sincerely held beliefs. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So how are the media, the courts, and the American public supposed to tell sincere beliefs from perhaps merely convenient beliefs? I have absolutely no idea about journalists. If journalists want to answer that question, they should focus on courts because courts have dealt with these issues before. There are some pretty good stories out there right now from major sources, such as the New York Times and the Associated Press. If there's something missing from them, there's kind of a... religious liberty-shaped hole in the middle of these stories, and that hole can be discerned by asking the following question. Sincerely held beliefs. The court has come up against this before, and as you've heard me say, the courts tend not to want to get involved in arguments about doctrine, and doctrine and beliefs are at the heart of this battle over vaccine mandates. And you've heard me say before, that when courts deal with this, there are usually three circumstances under which courts feel they have a right to get involved in these disputes. And one is fraud, the second is profit, and the third is clear threat to life and health. You can immediately see that the vaccine cases are going to be pretty relevant to that third in terms of courts wanting to try to to make some sort of consistent ruling. But I, I would ask our listeners to think about headlines they may have seen. And just for a brief moment, let's think about fraud and profit. If you have a minister, I mean, I've seen the headlines, I'm sure you have too, of ministers claiming that if people will make a donation of a certain size to their church, usually independent churches, of course, then the minister will mail them a can't-fail religious exemption letter for the mandate. Well, can't-fail is not the way you describe this sort of dispute in religious liberty. So could you see that a court might consider that a case of fraud? Certainly. Okay. So what's the difference between that and a Catholic bishop in Colorado saying we would like local businesses to consider finding alternatives to requiring people to have the vaccine. Maybe they could work from home. Maybe they could work a different shift. 
at a time of day where they could be work in isolation. In other words, there are other alternatives here than just taking away somebody's job. At the same time, we need to think of another case similar to this. What if you were a religious believer who owned a business and you wanted to set out of your own convictions for your business a policy that you would either require mandates or you would not require mandates and you were going to base this decision on your religious convictions? This would be a very interesting case because, once again, courts normally give a lot of leeway to independent organizations, independent businesses, etc. And what I think our listeners, and I'm sure this will sort of come out of left field on them, but think of it this way. Let's say that you owned a flower shop in Washington State, or maybe a cake shop in Colorado, and you wanted to make a claim for a religious exemption from state laws requiring you to create artistic works against your will that have content based on gay marriage. When, let's just theoretically say you're the owner of that flower shop or that bake shop, what are you going to have to argue? And this is where you get down to this whole issue of sincere belief. In both of those cases, even though you know these continue to get batted back and forth between the Supreme Court and whatever, but I think listeners will know what I'm talking about and think about this a second. On the subject of what is Christian marriage and whether or not we need to take part with our, our beliefs and our artistic skills, that we should be forced to create content that violates it, what these people are going to say is, I'm a Baptist. Baptists for 400 years have held the following belief. Christians have held the following belief for centuries and centuries. Marriage was defined by the early church in about 160 or 200 you know, years after the, the life and resurrection of Christ. We know what our traditions say about the issues involved here. So how would this same basic principles apply to the vaccine case? Can you think, and I, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but can you think of any religious traditions that you would say for more than 100 to 200 years have opposed people taking vaccines? Off the top of my head, I cannot think of any. I mean, there it might be something like, perhaps Christian scientists or some one of these Bingo. kind of, yeah, something like that. And Jehovah's Witnesses might yes. say that there's DNA material or anything from another and they don't, like they refuse blood transfusions. Okay, in both of those cases, courts would be in a difficult position because you clearly have a sincere belief stated over time, not just by an individual person. Because the problem here is not judging sincere belief of long-standing existing religious groups, traditions, doctrines, creeds, etc. The problem is how do you define sincere when you're dealing with one congregation, one individual believer? How do you judge the sincerity of a church that bases its belief that marijuana should be smoked in all services and they should have the right to sell it 
et cetera, et cetera. How do you judge unique, shall we say, innovative religious statements and beliefs? Now, this, this whole subject is something that looms over the press coverage, but what people don't seem to realize is that this is not a new issue. And the Associated Press did a pretty good story that noted some differences, for example, among Catholics on how exactly to respond at the level of Catholic bishops. But at the same time, you have overwhelming support for the vaccines. And barring proof that the vaccines are based on materials procured by abortion, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is the only one where I have heard Catholics say, this meets that test. We advise our believers not to take the Johnson & Johnson. We would prefer you take Moderna or Pfizer. The press is beginning to realize that religious groups are pretty uniformly in favor of the vaccines. At the same time, religious groups have been saying, I really don't think you should take away someone's job because of this. We think you should find other alternatives. That's an interesting tension. We don't see a lot of that in the coverage. But the point I'd like to make as I do my kind of long rambling opening that so frequently happens here, because there's so much to talk about, kind of, what we're dealing with here is this ongoing problem in American religion of the difference between statements and claims by established religious traditions with articulated doctrines and decades or centuries of practicing them. And this entire world of highly individualistic, in some cases, make it up as you go, highly individual churches, individual preachers, etc., and, of course, looming behind it all is politics. How many of the people claiming a religious exemption are not actually basing their decision on any religious doctrines from an existing tradition, church, mosque, synagogue, whatever, and they're actually, this is all about what they've read on the Internet, and they just don't want to do it, so they're going to claim religion because that's been working lately. So that's kind of my take on what I'm looking for in these stories, and I'm seeing pieces of it, but I'm not seeing anybody, like I said, just openly stating, this isn't a new question, and here's what's happened in the past. So this is left to organizations like, or I should say governmental organizations, like the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, to try to explain you know, where this comes from, the 1964 Civil Rights Act that created the EEOC, what the interplay should be between a person's claimed religion, the official doctrines there, and how much they have to adhere to that. This is what the EEOC says, and I want your response to it. This is what I'm not seeing in the coverage is this kind of nuance. An employer also should not assume that an employee is insincere simply because some of his or her practices deviate from the commonly followed tenets of his or her religion or because the employee adheres to some common practices but not to others. In other words, the EEOC, at least in this explanation of their role to play here, is saying, look, this is going to be automatically messy, and you can't simply say, well, the Pope said you can take the vaccine. That means every Catholic is now disqualified from a religious exemption. But the court's going to take into account 
that there are religious traditions that have doctrines that affect this and others that don't. And we know that because of cases involving RIFRA. And the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, when this gets to the court level, that's where we have seen these kinds of tests articulated and certain types of standards uh, being held. Let me just give it, I sometimes think it helps listeners to think of a different case for a moment. Let's consider the court cases that are going on right now about chaplains being involved in the moments when prisoners are being put to death. And the whole question of whether a Muslim who is being killed under the death penalty has a right to having an imam or spiritual leader with him, that a Catholic would have the right to have his or her priest present to hear final confession and comfort them at the time of their death, or a prisoner who's converted to evangelical Christianity and wants to have a pastor present with them at the moment of their death to offer comfort and to pray with them. Now, I think in all of those cases, we're seeing government officials trying to kind of control the, the death penalty process and having doubts about people that might oppose the death penalty. But yet we're seeing courts, and, and by the way, both conservatives and liberal religious liberty groups are supporting the rights of these prisoners in this case because it seems to fit the RIFRA description so well. I mean, there's centuries of tradition of priests being there to hear last rites. I mean, right? There's obviously, by example, centuries of tradition of people being able to pray with someone before their death, whether it's illness or whatever, or um, in this case, the death penalty. You have sincerely held beliefs, not just by individual prisoners, but by, like say, all Catholic prisoners, you know, over time in history, almost all of them if they are believing Catholics, are going to want a priest to hear their final confession and say last rites. So you don't have much trouble proving a history and background of sincerity there. The tougher cases, again, involve the individuals kind of just offering their own, well, this is just what I believe. That's where courts struggle. Let me give you one more example, the Jehovah's Witness case. I've studied the Jehovah Witness cases back when I was doing my degree in church-state studies, and they're particularly interesting because courts, I mean, the Jehovah's Witness say, you can't force me to have a blood transfusion. Yet in history, the Jehovah's Witnesses have gone out of their way to cooperate in efforts of finding other ways to do surgeries under those conditions such as the, the medical fact that you can build up someone's blood supply with saline and then do what's called a low blood loss surgery. Now, low blood loss surgeries have saved thousands of lives on battlefields. And judges tend to look favorably on the Jehovah's Witnesses on this case because what they see is decades of sincere belief. They also see decades of cooperation with the government to try to find ways that they can practice their faith in safer conditions or in ways that don't test the will of the state. Does that make any sense? The ones that drive judges crazy is, say, an individual Pentecostal believer who just says, 
I believe God will heal my child, and thus I want them exempt from all vaccines. I don't want surgery. I want anything. And the judge says, who believes this? And they say, well, it's just me and my pastor. At that point, courts tend to kind of struggle trying to judge motive. And right now, especially with all the evidence that so much of the vaccine opposition is coming out of political prejudices and conspiracy theories and whatever, I'm going to be surprised if we get a clear, simple court ruling that says, you say you believe it, that's fine. I think somehow it's going to get more complex than that, and this could end up going to the Supreme Court. Terry, what do you make of this headline? And I read this before from the Boston Globe, a murky battle over religious beliefs and COVID-19 vaccination continues. You said earlier, it's not like these questions have not been thoroughly vetted in the courts. It's not like we're facing this for the first time. Yeah, but they're still murky. And I do think it's that headline didn't offend me because, as I just said, when you push this to the level of individual believers and maybe individual congregations are new claimed forms of religion, this can get pretty murky really quick. What I think is very interesting is the uniformity that we've seen in a lot of the COVID. You and I have talked about this many times. The press seems to act like there are people who totally love the COVID regulations, are going to obey them, you know, and they're just going to shut down and go online. And then at the other side of these people who hate them and reject them and just are going to do their own thing no matter what the government says, when in reality the great mass of American religious groups are in the middle. They're trying to do as much worship and religious life as they can, but they're trying as well to follow the CDC guidelines in creative ways. I've cited several times the, you know, the, the fact that in Dallas they shut down some priests who were hearing confessions outdoors with the priest 12 to 15 feet away from the penitent, sitting out in the middle of a large field so that nobody could hear the confession. Both are wearing masks. How did that not fit the CDC guidelines when meanwhile you had people lining up and, you know, at liquor stores, you know, back to back lining up and going in to get drink? I mean, it seemed like people thought religion was uniquely dangerous. Well, in this case, we, like like you just said, we have some pretty good history here, but it's still murky because people don't always agree. Among Catholics and the Orthodox, for example, there are some bishops, prelates, and others who believe that if someone sincerely believes and they're not going to accept some of the scientific and journalistic evidence and explanations. If some people sincerely believe that abortion tissue was involved in the creation of these vaccines, does that give them a right to a religious exemption? And like I said, the you know the bishops in Colorado have said, we're willing to support people who want to make that case, even as we recognize that the Pope and the U.S. Catholic bishops have said, two of the vaccines are not only acceptable, we recommend them. So there's a little bit of murkiness, but once again, it's a murkiness based on centuries of discussion about a certain type of issue. I found it interesting that the AP story that you mentioned before 
an unlikely, it seems to me, an yeah. unlikely source, the Reverend Robert Jeffress, a First Baptist in Dallas, not a small influence in evangelicalism, and I think had the presidency here for four years. It says, he and his staff are neither offering nor encouraging members to seek religious exemptions from the vaccine mandates. Quote, there's no credible religious argument against the vaccines. Christians who are troubled by the use of fetal cell lines for the testing of vaccines would also have to abstain from the use of Tylenol, Pepto-Bismol, Ibuprofen, and other products that use the same cell line if they are sincere in that objection. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, it's a very interesting quote, and that's information I had not run into before. And I would say he's more influential among hard-shell Trump evangelicals than evangelicalism as a whole. I don't think he's particularly powerful, for example, among Southern Baptists. I mean, there are certainly ministers, I would say, have more clout. But he's got an excellent point there, and that's exactly the kind of consistency that courts are going to look for. In other words, does your faith have articulated doctrines that shape your use of vaccines? And if so, tell us the history of those beliefs. And what they're getting from people is, well, I just think they're wrong, or I don't want to accept that into my body. Once again, this gets into kind of individualism and the status of an individual religious believer is harder for a court to handle than a believer who is backed by the history of a particular given faith. I, I thought that quote was fantastic, and frankly, I would have led with it. That's a classic case where I think his information is interesting enough and novel enough. I would have tried to have got that one at the top of the story. Also quoted in the New York Times, Matt Staver, who is founder and chair of the Liberty Council, and he claims that they are receiving more than 20,000 queries on religious exemptions in the recent weeks, and they've legally jumped in to the fray when it comes to this story out of New York and the healthcare workers who wish to remain anonymous who are objecting to the mandate. Right. That's a strong section of that New York Times piece. But I think if I read listeners a few phrases from it, they'll hear kind of some of the subjects you and I have been discussing kind of looming in the background. There's a, a manager for the Society of Human Resource Management, the sorts of people, businesses and government that are being, you know, drug into the middle of these debates. And there's a, just this very blunt quote, how do I tease out who's not telling the truth? And that's a great way of stating it. Yet at the same time, like I said, we have long, long histories of trying, of courts attempting to find ways to discern whether this is just an individual's personal belief in prejudice, which is not without standing in American law, or is this a genuine claim to a religious exemption based on history? Now, the Liberty Council material that's in the New York Times story is really strong, but this section, let me just read two paragraphs here based on what you were just talking about that I hope listeners will hear how this fits with what we've been discussing, that journalists just can't connect these dots. Liberty Council filed suit on Friday against officials in New York over the state's attempts to deny religious exemption from its vaccination mandate for healthcare workers. The consequences of these forced edicts are enormous, Mr. Staver said, citing the possibility of labor shortage if health workers quit or are fired in mass. 
strong quote, I would have immediately said it would also help if they had called some of the other conservative church-state groups that work on these cases, the Alliance for Freedom, for example, the Beckett Foundation. I mean, these these groups have as much experience as this as Liberty Council. In fact, they probably have more in the last couple of years. It would have been good to have seen if they shared this, and if so, what their arguments are. But here, listen to this quote from Mayor Bill de Blasio. In New York City, where vaccines are required for public school teachers, Mayor Bill de Blasio said the city would recognize, quote, narrow and specific grounds for religious exemption, unquote. And the ball just drops. We never find out what those narrow and specific grounds for religious exemption are and whether New York City lawyers have done their homework and have found out the, the RIFRA tests that have been used in the past. It, it's like that whole idea narrow specific arguments in favor of an exemption that just seems to go away and we're left with the reality that thousands of these appear to be not based on existing religious beliefs or traditions or doctrines but this kind of murky cloud of politics internet conspiracy theories etc do you think that the fact that this is all being enacted at this point through the Labor Department and through private businesses of 100 employees or more, do you think that gets sufficient airtime or inches in print in the coverage of these mandates? The fact that it applies to businesses over a certain size certainly should be mentioned, and it should get into one of the questions I raised earlier. What if you had a smaller business and the owner of the business wanted to either require a mandate or wanted to not require a mandate. I mean, back down to this whole idea of the religious liberty freedoms of a business owner, which has been at the, the heart of so many battles in the recent decade or so, from Hobby Lobby to Chick-fil-A to, to whatever. The larger businesses and corporations are where the big numbers are going to come. And I would say right now that if if they focused on the medical professional cases and tried to dig down into the nature of those requests for religious exemptions, there's hardly anything you would want to cover that couldn't be explored in those cases, from big hospitals to smaller medical facilities, individual medical offices. Just about everything you would want to test would be available within that framework. And my advice to reporters would be to call a bunch of both liberal and conservative church-state lawyers and experts and ask them, what do you think courts are going to respond to as proof of sincere belief? So finally here, I think it's at least credibly assumed that the clock is ticking all of this. No one knows what the virus does next. And the vaccine mandates are very likely going to be challenged in court at the earliest opportunity. Some of these people seeking religious exemptions will have found a job because it's a good job market after having lost their employment. Do you think the subject is going to be overwhelmed by the ever-changing COVID news cycle? It's going to keep going for the simple fact that I don't think 
COVID, and I don't think the vaccinations are going away anytime soon. The flu vaccines that we get every year, deep down in the makeup of these vaccines, are materials from all the way back to the Spanish flu. I mean, once something like this gets into the human bloodstream of a nation, a culture, and the world, I think that we're going to be dealing with COVID for a long, long time. And it's very clear that our nation is dealing with disputes over the nature of religious liberty and that those are not going to go away. So you combine an ever-changing, evolving COVID coronavirus scene with our nation's disputes over religious liberty, and this story isn't going away. So journalists need to find out what are the crucial questions they need to ask and get some of this material into print. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.